It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Elon Musk is close to acquiring Twitter. Many are wondering and some are concerned about what his absolutist view of the First Amendment will mean for the social media platform. Musk described his outlook during a TED interview this month. We want to be just very reluctant to delete things and and have... um, just, just be very cautious with, with, with per- permanent bans. Uh, you know, t- timeouts, I think, are better. Or- My guest is First Amendment law expert Eugene Volick, a professor at UCLA Law School. Some people might confuse First Amendment rights with speech on social media platforms like Twitter. Can you explain free speech in the context of social media sites? Sure. Uh, We have this tendency to use First Amendment and free speech interchangeably. But while they're related, they're different. The First Amendment is a constraint on the government. Remember, the first word of the First Amendment is Congress. Congress shall make no law. That's been applied through the 14th Amendment to states, because the 14th Amendment starts with no state shall, and also to local governments and the like, which are agencies of states. But basically, only the government is bound by the First Amendment. Only the government can violate the First Amendment. So, for example, if your employer fires you for your speech or for your political activity or even for your vote, that's not a First Amendment violation. Likewise, if, let's say, a private university expels a student because of the student's speech, that's not a First Amendment violation. Freedom of speech is a broader concept, potentially. So you might say, for example, that universities, especially secular universities that describe themselves as devoted to free inquiry, should comply with free speech principles. Maybe not everywhere, maybe not in the classroom where the professor gets to decide whom to call on and what issues to discuss. But, uh, for example, that a university, private university, shouldn't expel a student because of his speech. In fact, in California, there's a state statute that bans private universities, except religious ones, from imposing speech codes on their students. I think that statute is a free speech protection, even though it's not a First Amendment protection. Likewise, you might say maybe private employers shouldn't be able to fire their employees for their speech, especially maybe off-the-job speech, especially maybe speech about politics. Again, in my own California, 
private employers are not allowed to fire employees based on the employee's political activity, which is defined very broadly to cover advocacy not just of candidates but also of ideological causes. Quite a few other states also protect private employees against employers that way. You might say that's a free speech protection. Likewise, if you think back historically to, say, the Hollywood blacklist of the 1950s, where uh, people who were viewed as having been communists or have been affiliated with communist-related organizations were blacklisted from jobs. You know, that wasn't a First Amendment violation, but you might have said that that was bad for the freedom of speech and maybe a violation of free speech principles. So likewise, people talk about free speech on social media platforms. Social media platforms are not the government. They don't violate the First Amendment if they ban people based on their speech. But you might argue that they ought to respect free speech because that's what our American democracy requires. So I think it's an important question how much and what kinds of free speech ought to be allowed, whether the law should require such protections or whether it just ought to be allowed as a matter of platform decision on these privately owned platforms. So Musk In trying to explain his position on freedom of speech, he tweeted, quote, I simply mean that which matches the law. Is he showing naivete in thinking that it's a simple concept like that? Well, I think you said he tweeted that. Well, (laughs) you can't capture even First Amendment rules in 280 characters or less. And you certainly can't capture the possible differences between free speech and First Amendment rules in 280 characters or less. Just to give an example, I think it's necessary for any platform to do something about spam. And there may be certain kinds of things which are protected by the First Amendment, certain kinds of mass mailings and mass posts that a platform might say, you know, they just degrade too much the user's ability to see real material that they want to see. Therefore, we need to block spam, even if spam is not illegal, or at least even kinds of spam that are not illegal. Likewise, you could imagine a platform, Twitter is not one of them, Twitter actually allows pornography, uh, at least of certain kinds, but you can imagine a platform saying, you know, we're not going to allow pornography because uh, there's too much of a risk that people will accidentally stumble across it, and therefore uh, we're just going to ban it. Uh, Likewise, Twitter, as I understand it, that allows pornography basically requires it to be labeled and kind of gives people warnings before showing it. Again, that's not a legal requirement. That's just Twitter's decision. So there are possible differences. This having been said... You know, if you want to kind of take a first cut, admittedly oversimplified view, you might say, yes, our view should be that Twitter should, generally speaking, protect free speech, at least so long as it's not illegal speech. So no, we won't host child pornography. No, we won't host things that are clearly conspiracy to commit crimes or kind of accounts that are being used for criminal conspiracy, let's say. We won't host copyright infringement because that's illegal. But pretty much all other things, generally speaking, we're going to host. Maybe there'll be a few exceptions, but they really should be very narrow exceptions. It's a plausible way of thinking about these. Musk is a self-described free speech absolutist. And in an interview at the TED conference a couple of weeks ago, he said, if in doubt, if it's a gray area, let the tweet exist. If there's a lot of controversy, you wouldn't necessarily want to promote that speech. But I'm very reluctant to delete things and cautious with permanent bans. Some civil rights advocates are saying that that kind of uh, minimally moderated Twitter can pose 
dangers or can harm women, minorities, and anyone out of favor with the establishment. What's your take on whether that kind of a minimally moderated Twitter poses any dangers? Well, of course, free speech poses dangers. Free speech has always posed dangers. That's one reason why governments do indeed try to restrict. And there's nothing special about those dangers for us to women or as to minorities or as to others. Just to give an example, there have been a lot of attacks on police officers recently, and some of them seem to be prompted by kind of very harsh criticism and kind of dehumanizing criticisms of police officers. And that's something that is a downside of, of speech. Likewise, for example, jihadist kind of uh, pro-terrorist extremism is potentially harmful. Actually, it's especially harmful to Muslims. Muslims are the main victims of extremist Islam, but it's also potentially harmful to others. Of course, speech is potentially harmful. But generally speaking, when it comes to the First Amendment, we take the view that on balance, it's better for everyone. And historically, this has been especially important for various out-of-favor minority groups that uh, speech be protected, because when speech is restricted, uh, that keeps people from being able to argue about what they think are genuine wrongs and to advocate for, for change. And that giving the government power to suppress speech that the government thinks is harmful will also suppress a lot of speech that's valuable. So one could argue, it's not necessarily obviously correct, but one could argue that the same thing applies not just to the government, but to immensely powerful platform operators like Facebook, Twitter, and the like, that perhaps on balance, just as it's good to deny the government the power to say, we're not going to allow this kind of speech because it's harmful, generally speaking, it's also good for these platforms to deny themselves this power, to say, look, we, we don't trust ourselves to make decisions about which speech is so harmful that should be prohibited, perhaps except for really extraordinary things, like, for example, child pornography or the like. So it seems to me a perfectly plausible position. Now, of course, you could argue that, no, the government ought to be banning more speech. The government ought to ban, some people say, ought to ban racist speech or ought to ban anti-government speech or anti-police speech or whatever else. Lots of people have argued this in the past. Or you could say, no, no, the government shouldn't ban it. But instead of the government banning it, we should make sure that all of these influential platforms do what the government can't, which is suppress speech that we think is harmful in various ways. You could argue that. But again, I think it's at least a plausible position to say that just as we don't trust the government to make these decisions, we shouldn't trust Mark Zuckerberg to make these decisions or even Elon Musk to make these decisions on a case by case basis, that maybe it's better for Elon Musk to say, look, you know, I don't want to be the censor dictating what is too harmful to be allowed and what is not. And then again, except in extraordinary circumstances, I'm going to allow everything to be, to, to be present. So I think it's a perfectly plausible position. It's not the only plausible position, but it seems to me one that makes a good deal of sense in light of the general assumptions that the courts and others have long held with regard to free speech broadly. So the former chair of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, said that Musk is taking actions that highlight the need for the creation of a new regulator that would oversee the technology industry, so for Congress to pass legislation. You think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Well, it depends on what legislation, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'll give an example. Let's say somebody says, you know, yes, we think that it's bad to have uh, statements that tend to encourage the killing of police officers. So there ought to be regulation that prohibits that. Or we think it's bad to have statements that uh, say insulting things about particular racial groups or particular religious groups. Well, that regulation 
would violate the First Amendment. We're not now in the category of free speech ethics. We're in the field of actual First Amendment law, and we know that that regulation would violate the First Amendment. If the proposal, and it doesn't sound at all like what uh, the FCC chair is talking about, but if the proposal is let's require platforms not to discriminate based on viewpoint, let's require them to host speech without regard to viewpoint, kind of like a phone company is required to basically host all paying customers and can't shut down your phone line because it doesn't like the viewpoints you're expressing using it. Well, that's a different story. I'm not sure that would be unconstitutional, although one can argue whether it is or isn't and whether it's a good idea or not. Or some people are saying the regulation should be that platforms should have the power to decide whether to block certain things. And some will say we'll block a lot of things. Some, like maybe Elon Musk's Twitter, will say we'll block very little. But what they should do is they should disclose it. They should disclose for the public all their editing decisions. You know, that might be constitutional, might even be a good idea, although there are possible interpretation problems as well. So the fact is that when it comes to to speech, there are some kinds of permissible regulations. We haven't even touched on things like regulations with regard to libel or regulations with regard to true threats of violence and the like. There are lots of regulations that would be impermissible. So it's hard to talk about whether there should be regulation in the abstract. You'd need to know what exactly is being proposed. The biggest change that's expected is replatforming of accounts that Twitter banned after they were used to, you know, harass or incite violence or spread misinformation. And he also said that he would be cautious with permanent bans and that timeouts would be better. I just want your take on that. Well, again, it all depends on exactly what we're talking about. So, for example, you said accounts that would harass, that that incite violence or that spread misinformation. So those are very different things. Harass, I'm actually writing an article about this. It's a term that doesn't have a really clear legal definition, or rather it has lots of different definitions in different contexts. So under some state laws, harassment means, among other things, physical misconduct, but also threats of violence. And, you know, threats of violence are constitutionally unprotected. Platforms don't have to take them down, but I think one can plausibly say that if something actually threatens violence, it's a crime and the platforms ought to take it down. On the other hand, sometimes we'll use harass to mean saying really mean things about someone and doing so repeatedly in a way that makes this person feel kind of insulted and set upon. Well, all right, you could call that harass, but it's also you could call it criticism. You could call it condemnation. So I'd need to know a lot more If you're asking whether some particular account that was guilty of harassment ought to be banned, I'd need to know a lot more about what that harassment is. Incite violence, well, it means incitement in the First Amendment sense of speech that is intended to and likely to cause imminent illegal conduct. Well, again, that's constitutionally unprotected, and maybe Twitter would remove it once it concludes that it's constitutionally unprotected. On the other hand, often people use incite loosely, which basically... Uh, just in the sense of tending to lead some people, almost always a tiny fraction of all readers, towards violence. And again, you might ask, well, what do you do with regard to an account that harshly condemns the police, calls them an occupying army, says no justice, no peace, praises rioters and looters and the like? Is that incitement of violence against the police or incitement of rioting, incitement of looting? Well, you know, uh, it could be called that in ordinary English. I'm not sure that that's an account that should be banned in those kinds of situations. And then you say misinformation. The problem is misinformation according to whom? 
Uh, right. One of the problems is a lot of times people have a dispute about what is accurate information and what is misinformation. Uh, what are accurate allegations about Hunter Biden's laptop and which ones were not? What were accurate allegations about whether uh, President Trump colluded with the Russians in 2016 and which were not? So I'm not sure that a company such as Twitter sh should be making decisions, oh, this account should be banned because it's misinformation, because it may just be that it's information that Twitter doesn't like or that Twitter's owners don't like. Then there's the separate question of once you conclude something ought to be blocked in some measure? Should it be a permanent block or should it be a temporary block? That's this timeout question. That's also a separate issue and may depend a lot on the, on the nature of the speech that's involved. Must taking charge of Twitter and making changes, will it change how we define free speech? Well, first, a lot depends on what changes he actually makes. We now are hearing the kinds of changes he's interested in making, but of course, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> we'll see in, in some months or maybe even some years as to what Twitter actually ends up doing. Second, of course, on one hand, free speech is a philosophical concept. People have been discussing it for hundreds of years, in some measure, thousands of years, but at least the current debate about it dates back to the 1600s or 1700s in England. Current American debate dates back to that. So as a result, the policy that Twitter implements or Facebook implements is not something that as a philosophical matter should affect our definitions of free speech. But as a practical matter, I do think that a lot of times people kind of take their cues about the meaning of a concept based on what is actually allowed. So if indeed platforms routinely ban certain kinds of speech on the grounds that, well, that's not free speech, it's hate speech, which is as a legal matter, that's a non sequitur because so-called hate speech is generally protected free speech. But imagine enough platforms say that. Imagine enough platforms say, well, that's not free speech, it's misinformation. Then maybe, indeed, over time, people will get used to it and people will come to assume that, well, of course, it's not free speech because we see that it's already prohibited by these influential entities. So it's possible. It's also possible that uh, maybe platforms' decisions try to censor things will backfire and will we'll remind people that this is free speech or just free speech that platforms uh, are wrongly forbidding. So it's really hard to tell how public attitudes towards these kinds of concepts will evolve as a result of private corporations' decisions. Thanks, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Former President Donald Trump is appealing a New York judge's ruling holding him in contempt of court and imposing a $10,000 fine each day for failing to comply with his subpoena in the attorney general's civil fraud investigation. In more than 6 million pages of corporate records handed over, only 10 documents were Trump's. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter. For failing to comply with his subpoena, so for those who may have been living under a rock, tell us about what the AG is investigating. Sure. This is an investigation that started in 2019, looking into the Trump organization's uh, use of uh, asset valuations over the years for some of its biggest assets, and whether or not those valuations were manipulated in any way to give uh, Trump better terms on things like bank loans or insurance or even tax refunds and things like that. And this investigation started after Trump's longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen, testified for Congress and alleged all kinds of wrongdoing at the Trump org. So the attorney general, Letitia James, opened the investigation at that time, issued a bunch of subpoenas, um, and ultimately had to go to court to enforce those subpoenas because the Trump organization disagreed with their validity. So that's how this court case got started. And that, that investigation is obviously ongoing. Have Trump and the Trump organization turned over documents? Well, yeah, those are two very different questions because the Trump organization ultimately was ordered to comply with the subpoenas and has been doing so. Obviously, there's still disagreement about that, but they have turned over more than six million pages of documents. Dozens of employees and former employees, you know, have searched their records and been deposed under oath and things like that. But as for Trump, you know, the earlier subpoenas to the Trump organization and, and everyone else had turned over some documents that were Trump's, essentially, but but only 10. So out of 6 million pages, only 10 documents were actually from Trump himself, who is, you know, the leader of the company. So in December, um, the attorney general issued a subpoena to Trump himself for records and information in his possession, as well as his testimony. You may recall that, that Trump and also his son, Don Jr., and Ivanka Trump Uh, who had also received subpoenas, they all challenged the subpoena for their testimony. They lost on that. They were ordered to be deposed. They've appealed, and that is happening separately. But what they didn't challenge was the subpoena for Trump's records. So it was understood and expected that the former president would be handing over some records of his own in his possession uh, related to these various asset valuations by March 31st. That was a deadline that was agreed by the attorney general and Trump, and it was ordered by the court. So March 31st came, and instead of complying in full as he was ordered to do, he instead uh, filed a 16-page, what the judge described as a boilerplate objections to the subpoena for records that he had already agreed to comply with, um, and an affirmation by his lawyer stating that there were no records, They've looked and there were none. So that's where we ended up with this contempt of court decision. 
A lawyer for the AG flagged concerns about hard copy records that should be searched in file cabinets on two floors of Trump Tower, a storage closet near Trump's office, and an off-site location. That seems awfully specific. How did they even know about those locations and that there might be documents there? Well, they would have learned about this from their investigations so far. You know, they've gotten uh, from all of their interviews with other employees and just from looking at the documents that have been turned over. I'm sure they have a very good idea of how the records are stored. Um, There's a lot of hard copy records. They go into a series of filing cabinets. I think they said on the 25th and 26th floors of Trump Tower. There's also a storage closet outside of Trump's office where some records are stored, and then, of course, an off-site location, which is not unusual. But basically what the judge determined was that if Trump is going to say there are no records, that it needs to be done with more than just saying that. You know, that that clearly, in the judge's view, did not um, comply with his order to follow up with the subpoena. So he did find him in contempt of court, said that it just was not nearly enough just to raise these objections at this point, that it was too late. He'd already agreed to comply by the subpoena. Um, And then instead of doing so, filed some objections that should have been filed earlier and then just made a sort of a blanket statement by his lawyer that there were no records around. So the judge said, you need to be much more specific. You need to tell me exactly where you searched, exactly what you searched, exactly when you searched it and who searched it. And then maybe you'll be in compliance with the court order and you'll no longer be in contempt. But until then, he's in contempt of court and is approving a $10,000 a day fine. So his lawyer said President Trump does not email, he does not text message, and he has no work computer at home or anywhere else. So is she saying these documents just don't exist? Right. His lawyer, Alina Haba, at the uh, hearing on Monday where Trump was found in contempt, she guaranteed to the judge verbally that she had personally looked in all of these places and that she had actually flown down to Florida and met with Trump at Mar-a-Lago to interview her client about these records to determine if there were any responsive records. And she guaranteed to the court that she had done all of these searches personally and that no responsive records were found and that Trump said there were no records that were found. Obviously, that did not cut it with the judge. He said, that's saying this to me now in in court is a lot different than explaining this in a sworn affidavit. And by the way, the judge says, why don't we just get a sworn affidavit from Trump himself? He didn't end up ordering anything like that. But he, he said in court, I just can't take your word for it. We need to have something much more detailed explaining why there are no records from Donald J. Trump responsive to all of these huge asset valuations, uh, some of his key assets at the company that he's at the head of. So the the judge wants something much more concrete. Do you think that if the lawyer signed an affidavit swearing to what she said in court, that would suffice? That was my takeaway, that uh, the judge, you know, suggested that that is something that would bring them into compliance. It's another question whether or not the attorney general would, you know, accept that or believe that. You know, they did indicate uh, during these uh, hours of arguments in court that, you know, they just sort of find it a little hard to believe that, you know, as I mentioned, the guy running this company does not have any records that are responsive compared to the six million pages that have been handed over by the company and everyone else. So, you know, Ms. Haba did make the point, of course, that, that Trump does not use a computer. But nevertheless, 
the attorney general believes that there may be responsive documents anyway, whether it's um, hard copies of calendars or other documents that he received and put away in a filing cabinet or something, you know, like that. But his lawyer just, you know, pointed out that even the text messages of his children um, had already been turned over and searched and that none of those text messages were to Donald Trump. She made that point to say he doesn't even text with his own kids. But, uh, you know, as the judge said, put it in, in writing, put your name on it, and we'll see if that brings you into compliance. So Trump is filing an appeal. What are his chances? Well, that appeal is just not surprising. Uh, his lawyer said that uh, she would be filing an appeal as soon as the written order hit, and that happened yesterday afternoon. So I spoke with a gentleman who's not involved in the case, but who is a former prosecutor in California and a former state court judge. And he said that these kinds of contempt orders and fines are generally upheld on appeal because the appellate courts, you know, give a lot of deference to judges to determine the best way to enforce uh, compliance with their court orders. That these trial judges, they're the ones who have all of the facts in their possession for all of these these cases and that a contempt finding is very fact specific. And so they just leave it to the judges, for the most part, to to determine uh, when someone is in contempt and to issue fines. So I think it would be fairly hard, would be my guess, to get out of of a contempt finding like this, given the way the judge spelled out exactly in his order how Trump came to not be in compliance with the order and the amount of time that Trump had to um, previously raise his concerns instead of waiting until after uh, the March 31st deadline. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, for right now, the contempt order is in place, and he's currently accruing $10,000 a day, like I said. The judge also ordered Cushman and Wakefield, a real estate services firm that was used by Trump, to comply with subpoenas. Have they been fighting subpoenas? You know, they had – Cushman and Wakefield had been – cooperating. They had received subpoenas like a lot of other entities and businesses that had been involved with Trump organization over the years in the process of these huge appraisals, you know, law firms, engineers, architects, things like that. So this Cushman and Wakefield was was complying. Uh, But at one point, uh, I think it it seems they decided that it was going too far. The the demands for documents were getting too broad for their liking. And they did finally uh, go to court to try to uh, quash the most recent subpoena. And the judge denied that and ordered them to to continue complying um, and actually added Cushman and Wakefield as a respondent to the case, which the company had also tried to prevent from happening. So, you know, this company was involved in three of the main assets, Trump Organization assets that are being scrutinized. There are a lot of assets being scrutinized, but three of them in particular, Cushman and Wakefield was involved in, in appraisals. I'm including the Trump Golf Club in Los Angeles, a, a property called Seven Springs near New York City, and the 40 Wall Street skyscraper downtown. Um, and the AG lawyer pointed out at this court hearing that you know valuations had gone really kind of all over the place very quickly for some of these properties in a way that benefited um, the Trump organization, and that they want to see more records about how they came to value these assets and why they changed. Any idea when the AG is going to wrap up this investigation? I, I know she said that she's uncovered significant evidence. Yes, I got the hint, or more than a hint. I guess the, the AG's lawyer said at the hearing on Monday that some sort of enforcement action was likely soon um, with the Trump organization. So 
There is a statute of limitations concerns, things like that. But the AG's lawyer even indicated um, that after some enforcement action is taken, that they might continue the investigation. That they believe that the nature of some of the potential offenses would be such that the offenses might have continued in, in a way that the statute of limitations wouldn't apply necessarily in their view. So I think we could see something fairly soon. And as you mentioned, Tish James, the attorney general, has already said that she has found significant evidence of potentially misleading asset value evaluations. She gave that uh, in a preliminary report, sort of trying to enforce these subpoenas um, and demands for testimony because they were putting up such a fight. Uh, James had to go to court to ex explain or really reiterate why the investigation was so necessary. And she put out some preliminary findings that seems to be potentially pretty serious. When you say enforcement actions, what does she mean? I thought she'd just bring a lawsuit against him. Well, I think those are one and one the same. I assume that that is what he meant, but he just used the term enforcement action. Um, I think that it's likely it could come in the form of a civil complaint accusing the company and potentially individuals of wrongdoing in relation to these asset valuations. Well, more to come, as always, with these Trump investigations. Now I want to go to a completely different subject, the mask okay. mandates. It, it was a shock to a lot of the country and maybe the Biden administration as well when a, last week a Florida judge struck down the travel mask mandate. And this wasn't because of a lawsuit filed by the governor or state officials. It was because of a lawsuit filed by a former Wall Street banker who now lives in Idaho. Tell us what you found out. Yes, uh, it was interesting. I can I can uh, confirm that we were at least in the newsroom taken by surprise when this when this uh, order hit because it was not a case that we were frankly watching as closely as the one you mentioned earlier, where Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, uh, was leading a multi-state lawsuit in Florida seeking to overturn the national mask mandate for public transportation. Uh, so when this hit, um, it was a surprise, and I had never um, actually heard of this organization that had filed the lawsuit. Uh, but as you said, it was it was filed by a former Wall Street banker. Her name is Leslie Manukian. Uh, she's 58 years old. She lives in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, the ski resort town. Uh, but she used to work at Goldman Sachs in New York and London, and then went to a precursor company for Alliance. Uh, Bernstein uh, in in London as well. She was in London for 10 years. And then around 2003, she retired at a fairly young age and moved back to her native Idaho uh, to raise her child. And uh, that is where she got into natural medicine and uh, became anti-vaccine. And after the pandemic started anti-mask even. Uh, so she founded a nonprofit organization called Health Freedom Defense Fund in 2020 with the specific uh, aim of suing um, over various mandates. Um, she also has a lawsuit pending in federal court against the Biden administration's uh, vaccine mandate for federal employees. Lots of other lawsuits filed over that as well. Hers is just one of them. Um, but at any rate, um, a Trump-appointed federal judge, as we've all heard by now, um, uh, ruled in favor of Ms. Mnuchin's nonprofit and vacated the mask mandate nationwide. Let me ask you this. Maybe you asked her this. For an organization based in Idaho to file a lawsuit in Florida, was she forum shopping for this particular judge or for a conservative judge? 
Well, I'm sure that she would say no to that. <laughs> I did speak with uh, some some experts uh, who think that that was clearly potentially something that was going on there. Um, you know, even uh, with all of those states joining together to file a lawsuit, you know, they, they filed it in Florida. So um, it could have been any of the states where they filed it, but they filed it there. But, you know, it's not difficult for a nonprofit based in any state to find some plaintiffs to work with or some lawyers to, to establish a right to sue in any other state. It's just kind of, I suppose, the nature of the, the federal court system. But uh, she definitely got lucky with that judge, I guess you could say. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.